Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to lunch next week. Um, but I've prepared a meal for this morning. I think the Lord has got something for us. I don't know about you, but I just love studying the Bible book by book and getting into it. And as I was preparing for today and I turned to the Old Testament, it felt like I was sitting down for a cappuccino with an old friend. You know, you just like, oh, I love this, you know. And you get that caffeine rush or that revelation rush or whatever it is. I don't know what it is that kind of hits you in that moment as you sit down with Daniel and, of course, with Jesus. So today, Daniel uh, takes us to the climax of the life of this ancient emperor king named Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled at the high point over, uh, of the ancient Babylon, uh, Babylonian Empire. Remember, of course, that you know, his early stages, of course, is conquest. We know from the rest of the Bible he goes and he wipes out half the world and then he uh, conquers Jerusalem and he takes a first wave of exiles, which included Daniel. Later he'd go back and obliterate the place. Um, but the first years, decades of his reign, essentially conquest and then um, he, uh, and, and then he moves to establish uh, this human kingdom, but God reveals to him in chapter 2, quite early on, there's this disruptive dream, Daniel has to supernaturally know it and then interpret it, and shows Nebuchadnezzar that human kingdoms will never last, and that God will establish his kingdom on earth even as human kingdoms come and go. And this, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's processing this inside his polytheistic worldview leaving everyone free to kind of pick their own God, choose their own truth, live their own deal, whatever, except that he's demanding that whenever he gets a particular insight, everyone runs with it, and we've seen how that goes. Um, and he sets up that statue made in his self-image that he expects everyone to worship, only to discover in chapter 3 that the God of heaven is the God we serve rather than the God who serves us which is a very important distinction. Um, but he's also the God who comes to stand with his people in the fire and uh, who can save them and sometimes does. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't learn. He doesn't change. He admires their faith, but he doesn't embrace it. He chooses this compliment as a cop-out. Like, wow, guys, that's awesome. Your God is amazing. Don't ask me to worship him, but I think you're very cool. Um, <clears throat> instead, he offers this God his protection, as if the Lord needs his patronage. So you're kind of left wondering, what's the story of Nebuchadnezzar? Where is it going to take him? And, uh, and now you're going to need to listen to the story in the reading, because the reading is so long, it's almost like a thing in itself. Okay, But I, I tried a hundred ways to cut the cookie, and I could not leave parts of the chapter out. So you're going to hear the whole of Daniel chapter 4, and it's, and it's so sort of like interesting. I haven't got time to go back and retell the story today. We're just going to dive in. But uh, other than that, we have mercy from the steering team that will preach Daniel chapter 4 as long as it takes to unpack it. So here we go. This is ancient uh, writing format. You introduce yourself, and then you <coughs> tell people who you're writing to. So you never write yours sincerely at the end. 
You always start with the writer, which I think is very helpful, actually, you know. <coughs> Any case. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, in other words, that's the writer, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Just listen super carefully. I mean, there's so much in every sentence. It's my pleasure to tell you about the signs and wonders. These signs and wonders, uh, when you come, I'm not sure they're a pleasure. But in any case, how great are his signs? How mighty his wonders? His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He's starting to get the point. Now here's his letter. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace. That's quite a luxury sentence. Eh? I was at home in my pad. I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a dream that terrified me. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. You'd think he'd just call Daniel straight away. <clears throat> when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners came, I told them the dream, gave them a head start this time, but they could not interpret. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. Brackets. I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar. I named him after my God. <laughs> because the spirit of the holy gods is in him. What an interesting description from a pagan. Interesting that he names him after his God. He's still trying to like put the creator God who can inspire a Daniel into his box. I said, Belteshazzar, chief magician. I'm not sure Daniel liked that title. <laughs> I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and there's no mystery too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpreted for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. Its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Big point coming later. Like this is provision for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter. The birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying on bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, or an angelic watchman. The word watchman is, is used there in the original. Coming down from heaven, he called out in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off the leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it, the birds from under its branches, but let the stump and, the root and its roots 
bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. The edict continues. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the watchmen. The holy ones who declare the verdict. So that the living may know that the Most High is king over all the kingdoms on earth. And gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. So this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Daniel Belshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time. His thoughts terrified him because the dream was so obvious if you've got a biblical worldview. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream belonged to you and to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, was visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundance fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nothing, uh, so having nesting places for the branches in the branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that tree. You are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown till it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Sounds like Genesis chapter 1 all over again. This kingdom stuff, you know. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, this is the most... Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Verse 23, your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger watchman coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree, destroy it, leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the most highest issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is king over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my counsel. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Maybe that your prosperity will continue. 
And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice that once he loses his marbles, it goes into the third person, even in his letter. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon? I have built as royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majestic ego. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, will live with the wild animals, you eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is king over all the kingdoms of the earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Third time that sentence is repeated. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, ate grass like an ox. We don't know what kind of mental condition caused this personal disintegration. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claws of the bird. Remember, he'd been told he'll get a mind of an animal. He'll live in utter survival mode. And at the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. He recognizes he'd actually gone insane. Something about his power and glory drove him mad. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. This is weird. My advisors and nobles sought me out. How did the kingdom function for about seven years with a nutter? Well, most empires do. <laughs> they sought me out, restored me to my throne, and it became even greater than before. Now... I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. Because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sorry. Um, it's, like a, it's, it's like something just all there in itself. You just go and you... Read it and you think about it and it's, it's like God, so much to make you stop and pause. I want to highlight a few things this week before a few things next week and a few things thereafter as we go through. So uh, point number one this week, uh, remember this is not a Disney story where everyone chooses what they believe in and they're self-made gods. No, 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 this is the God we serve and we commit ourselves to it. So he describes himself, at home in my palace, contented 
and prosperous. Now, contentment in the Bible is apparently a good word. And prosperous can be. It's a bit of a, a mixed thing. Sometimes prosperity can cause you to take your eyes off God. And sometimes prosperity is the gift of God. So it's important to remember that the very gifts of God can take your eyes off the God who gave them. And so he finds himself in this place, and, and he's, just, he's just enjoying it. Nebuchadnezzar has overseen multiple military conquests, and then they were followed up by this massive social engineering experiment, which is do not conquer and just kill. Do not conquer and leave the vanquished in the land. No, you conquer and assimilate. You take these people whom you've conquered to yourself. You bring them to yourself. You train them in your beliefs, your values, your worldview, your spirituality, everything. You give them your names, and you make them even more Babylonian than you are. And he seems to be impressively successful in his empire. I mean, Daniel acknowledges that he, his rule pretty much goes to the ends of the known earth at the time. His early years of military conquest, then assimilating people, are then followed by what is one of the, the greatest building projects of ancient times. As he begins to build the city for his splendor, and the place of his throne in ancient Babylon. Now, what's interesting about this is that he, he's, um, according to legend, building a garden city. And so this city wasn't just a place for many people. It was a place of exquisite beauty. You may have heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon. So these were terraces and walls, and they were, they were specifically designed so that inside the city, you still had this sense of contact with nature and with creation. It was creation tamed to be accommodated in a city, and yet make that city amazing. Now, gardens and cities, Genesis 1, Revelation 22, everything in between, there's so much going on here. Um, and so, you know, this idea of being able to live as a collective of people, a garden city is a powerful promise of contentment and prosperity. If you're able to hold those two things together. Anyone know what Pinelands was started as? The, the first garden city of South Africa. A powerful promise of contentment and prosperity. And strangely enough, this is a theme of the kingdom of God. A garden city. And at the end of time, we'll have a, a city whose, you know, the very center of it is the throne of God. And from under the throne will flow a, a river. And out of that and along the banks of it are fruit that feed the nations, they for the healing of the nations. Literally, there's this garden image in the city of God that transforms the city into something amazing. Nebuchadnezzar has this picture in his mind as he's building, but he's not building the kingdom of God, he's building the kingdom of Neb. 
and he's making something for his renown, we can have it all. You can have the benefits of advancement and civilization as well as the blessing of taming creation and making it yours. Now, there's a whole lot of discussion that could follow. You know, you could look at climate change and who knows what. Our care of creation and the way we integrate it in how we live. These were things that Nebuchadnezzar was actively trying. God's rule starts in a garden, but ultimately climaxes in a city on earth in which the Lord himself will dwell. So you can go to heaven if you like. When I die, I'm going to be on earth with Jesus because this is where he's coming to bring his real kingdom. But I don't just have to wait until then. I expect to see every day more and more of the kingdom and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. So he has this theme, this idea, this is going on. But it is also a theme of the beastly empires of men. In fact, Babylon won't be famous for its gardens. In the Bible, Babylon becomes famous as the archetype of the ruthless empire, oppressive kingdom in which humanity's inhumanity is most evident. In which beauty, success, power, glory, majesty are at the expense of the oppressed and the vulnerable. You see, we can all be seduced by the lies of building a life that promises our success and our prosperity. Jesus, the startling man from Nazareth, who is more than a man, asks this disruptive question. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What good is it to have an empire to the ends of the earth and forfeit your own soul? You know, this is hectic for all of us. What are the things that we assume are necessary to make us happy that are actually destroying us and the people around us? Nebuchadnezzar is content. He's happy. He's built this amazing, amazing empire and kingdom and city. He doesn't realize it's destroying him. In other words, what if the ladder of success is leaning against the wrong wall and you're busy climbing and you're about to enter a fortress that you don't want to live in? So he, in God's mercy, gets disrupted by a terrifying dream. It's not just unsettling. He says, it made me afraid. And he wrestles with this universal experience and question. In 2006, Haraki Murakami, a Japanese author, won the World Fantasy Award for a very weird book. Okay, it had been translated, it had been written earlier in Japanese, made it to the shelves in English in 2006 called Kafka on the Shore. And one of his fictional characters writes, uh, observes this in the dialogue. As long as I was alive, I was something. This is just how it was. But somewhere along the line, it all changed. Living turned me into nothing. Weird. That's 
I'm, I'm quoting the text. People are born in order to live, right? But the longer I've lived, the more I've lost what's inside me. And I've ended up empty. I bet the longer I live, the emptier, the more worthless I'll become. Something's wrong with the picture. Life isn't supposed to turn out like this. Oh, isn't it possible to shift my direction to change the course in which I'm headed? Sometimes we realize the stuff we're living for, the longer I live, the more worthless I become. At our previous church, a young man who was a very good teacher, he, he joined the church as a student, watched him qualify for his teaching, and then he was being employed at some of the top um, private schools in the Natal Midlands. And I won't give them the airtime. Uh, he had his... He came to church one Sunday and had his life disrupted by a single verse of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 2. The verse is, Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? And his life direction was arrested as he began to think about what would truly satisfy him as he gave his life to something, because we're all giving our lives to something. What are you giving your life to? And as he, and then the verse continued, listen, listen to me, says God. Eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest of fare. And so he wrestled with the answer. You know, why spend money on what is not bread? Your labor on what does not satisfy. And he had this longing, this longing Ultimately, he left his employment as a teacher, turned his passion for God, for people, and for teaching into one of, in my view, the most amazing Christian nonprofits in the country. And they are doing a truckload of stuff, even to this day, including back then it was investing in the early childhood development of a parentless community that was nearby in a disadvantaged area where there were thousands of orphans in an HIV-AIDS ravaged area. Today, you, you, you cannot even recognize what God has done. And he wrestled with that question, why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? You don't know what your disruptive thing will be. I mean, it could be a dream, it could be a verse, it could be a sermon, it could be a conversation with a friend. And he didn't start with an answer. He started with a disruptive and painful crisis, as was Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, sometimes it's the disruptions of God that are the kindest things that he could do for us. And so Nebuchadnezzar is called to repent by Daniel. This king, you know, verse 27, he says, Your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice or my counsel. Renounce your sins. You know, Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Every time there's a kingdom, the most appropriate logical thing you can do is repent and bring about a radical change. 
And if you've been confronted by a kingdom, even if you're Nebuchadnezzar, it's time to renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your life of blessing and prosperity will continue. So, Daniel is seriously courageous. Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity, his ease, his success, his fame, well, they've been built on oppression, on empire and conquest. And so even the beauty that he has surrounded himself with is nevertheless fed by the heart of evil that the Bible sees in human kingdoms. What's so wrong with this kingdom? For a small elite, they create a fake heaven on earth. So there were a few people who could walk through Nebuchadnezzar's palaces, a few people who could enjoy his walls, a few people who could enjoy his gardens. But Daniel has not forgotten that he himself was dragged into this elite. But like Moses... Remember when we saw, it wasn't that he was keeping kosher. It was that the food in the palace, chapter 1, was obsessively indulgent and rich and opulent. And he was offended by the fact that there were people so vulnerable, poor, and oppressed that he could not bring himself to eat that food at that table. And he has not forgotten the vulnerable and the oppressed. So when he stands and he's now finally got the chance to talk to Nebuchadnezzar about what he should do, he says, do what is right, renounce your ways, and show kindness to these people. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. He knows that the kingdom has not come until all tears are being dried, not just some until all sickness is being healed, and until all the hungry are being fed. And to sit and eat at the banquets while so many people can't. To him, he gets this chance to talk to the king, and he remembers those people. I don't know how many series you've heard on Daniel and what made him so special, but let me tell you, this is at the heart of a conflict of kingdoms. According to the word of God. He remembers that the law upholds a vision of life in which every person is able to receive their own inheritance, work their own soil, and in that beautiful picture, rest under their own vine. The Arrow people who neither have their land, they don't have their soil, and they cannot rest because they are enslaved by empire. You know, the problem with the garden cities of this world and the Cape Towns of this world is they invariably produce and coexist with the Capricorns and the Kyaliches. For every upper Constantia or Claremont, there's a lower crossroads. And Daniel won't forget. You know, every time we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
we're also praying that not a person made in his image goes to bed hungry that night. Give us today our daily bread. What will it take to reimagine the world where nobody is hungry or naked or abandoned or outcast? This is at the heart of the Old Testament. This is at the heart of what Jesus comes to bring in the New Testament. And Jesus knows that if that's going to happen, the first thing we're going to need to do is repent and forgive. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. The kingdom is coming. Repent. Forgive. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter. But gosh, there's time to make a change. And as I thought about this, I thought it would be good to remind those of us who are new to PBC that there are multiple families in our church who, when confronted by these stories of injustice and inequality, when reminded of what it is like to be oppressed and dispossessed, in our collective history in South Africa and inside our own church. There have been people who, as an act of repentance, have been and continue to give far beyond a tithe into our church so that the church itself might be transformed. That the church itself can raise up leaders and invest in people that if we'd simply gone along in our normal little church empire building, we would never have been able to do. That our church itself might be transformed, that our city might be transformed, that our country can have a picture of what doing the right thing looks like. And we considered that on Heritage Day. It's not charity. It's the repentance that our stories require. Could I ask you, what does repenting look like for you? What does repenting, doing the right thing, O King? <laughs> o King Lucy, <laughs> Queen Lucy, King Andrew, King James, the new revised version. What is really repenting? look like for you because the kingdom is here the king is here what is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness seeking this first look like and he promises he'll add the contentment <laughs> he'll add his own joyful glorious version of what genuine biblical prosperity will look like So we find Nebuchadnezzar, I know I'm jumping, brought to his senses by God. He goes through this mad phase of insanity. By the way, when was Nebuchadnezzar the most insane? When he was walking on his palace walls, looking at his gardens and his glorious city, saying, look at what I've done for my majesty, or when he was eating grass and you couldn't tell whether he was human or animal. When was Nebuchadnezzar the most crazy? In his pride. In his insufferable pride, he says at the end, God, 
is able to humble the proud. And if you think that you're building something, you're just plain nuts. The story carries with all this ancient uh, Middle Eastern narrative irony, you know, it invites you to reflect on when is this king the most crazy? It also invites you to reflect how on earth can an empire survive with a nutter as its leader? And then you realize that's what empires are. They're people who've lost the plot. When did God reveal his kindness most to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, certainly part of revealing his kindness was showing him how crazy his pride was. And if it took seven years to crawl on the ground, then that was a kindness that God did to him. You know, Psalm 20 and verse 4 reads, May the Lord, or yeah, may he, may the Lord, give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Listen carefully. Quite often God's judgment and his blessing are the same thing. He gives you what you want. If you want something that's filled with pride, he may well give it to you. If you want something that is cruel and unkind, the judgment of God is that he gives you what you want. We need to curate carefully the ambitions and the desires that burn in our hearts because it is a blessing that God, if my desires are for good things, it's a wonderful blessing when God gives me the desires of my heart. But Romans chapter 1 is very clear that God hands people over to what they desire as an act of judgment. So it's very sobering. Like, what am I living for? So as we wrap up and head towards communion, I want you to complete the sentence. I'll be content and prosperous when. You've got your answer. I'll be content and prosperous when. As you have your answer, let's, let's just look at it. Is God in your answer to the, that question? Where does he feature? Is he the means or is he the end of your dreams? In other words, do you want to use God? Do you want God to serve you? Or is your ambition and longing to know and serve God? See, what you define as success, God may well give to you. And it may not be nice. 
And are there others in your answer? Were there others in your answer? I will be content and prosperous when? For Nebuchadnezzar here to learn to think about others in order to answer that question well. As Daniel showed him, does your ambition include the oppressed and the vulnerable? You know, as this book of Daniel continues, he is given, and we get to see through the corridors of time, a point in history when one like the Son of Man will begin the kingdom of God on the earth. We'll get there. It will start small, it will grow. And the Son of Man will trigger both judgment and mercy, similar to something like what's gone on in Nebuchadnezzar, both judgment and mercy. You know, when Jesus came, he went through the scriptures and went to the book of Daniel, and this was the title he chose, the Son of Man. It was his most frequent self-designation. And it was this kingdom breaking into the kingdoms of humankind that he proclaimed. And this is the challenge he presents to us. Stop living for yourself. Repent. It's time to live for me. And if you'll do that, you'll find yourself living for others. Follow me. Believe in me. And he calls us to do this without apology. Repent. The kingdom is here. He calls us to do this in love. And he calls us because he made sure that the first judgment fell on him so that we might be shown mercy. On the cross, having identified with us in his baptism as we saw a few weeks ago, Having said to the Father, count me amongst the sinners, even as heaven then said, we count you as one of us, you're our own. He nevertheless identified with sinful humanity and went all the way to the cross. And in love, he made sure that judgment first fell on him so that mercy could fall on us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and the those who are serving communion, if they're going to just help us, won't you stand ready as we hold this thought? That Jesus made sure that judgment first fell on him so that mercy might fall on us. We have an opportunity at this table to search our hearts and to say, what am I living for? What is it that is in me that others will experience and receive? Isaiah prophesied about this judgment and this mercy. In chapter 53, he said, surely... He, and he was speaking then prophetically of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. 
He took our pain. He bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus, the sin of us all. Will you receive that today? Will you believe that? And as you do, will you begin to live for a new kingdom? You know, there's only one response today. It's repentance. It's repentance and salvation. It's recognizing judgment fell 2,000 years ago so that mercy can come to you right now. And it's repentance and salvation and it's repentance and dedication. Like that young man back in Hilton. God, I, I really do want to live my life by the vision you have. I want to spend my life on things that satisfy. I want to invest my all in your kingdom because of what you've done.